We are, uh, some of you know, or if you're new, you don't know, I'll bring you up to speed. We are in a, a series over the last few weeks on marriage, singleness, and sex, uh, trying to understand what... Um, in, in matters of the heart and things that are closest to us or things that are prevailing in our culture, what is God's design for us in these areas of life? And the promise of embracing God's design is a life of no regrets. And what I have said to you week after week is that no regrets isn't only a hope for those who are just starting out in life, who haven't really made any major decisions, and therefore uh, they could hopefully have that as their goal. But for the rest of us who have lived life, well, we have to live with regrets. And what I said was that the most important day in your life with God is today. No matter what has happened in your past, a past you cannot change, no matter what you think may or may not happen in a future that is uncertain, today is the only day that you have with God to respond. And so, no matter what has happened in your past, whether you would say, well, I have a life full of regrets, or a few, or maybe just one, that you would understand that today, scriptures say, when you hear God's voice, don't turn away, move towards him. And I have found that each time we say, okay, today, God, I want to follow you, not only does God begin to change the trajectory of our lives, but miraculously he reaches back into our past and is able to heal and touch the things that we cannot change. He's able to do things that we are unable to do, but would long to have a redo if we could. And so our hope is that God would not only give us a pathway forward of no regrets, but in this series, and hopefully as you've been, some of you that are in home groups that are talking about these things that are really tough to talk about, I know that last week your study guide, I don't know whether there were crickets in your small group or you just decided to do a service project that week or something, but those are the things that we need to talk about together to say, God, we need you to heal us. None of us are perfect. All of us are fallen. That's the ideal, but all of us live in the real. And so we need you to not only chart our course forward, but heal backwards, reach your hand back into our lives and do that. And so that's what we've been praying would happen uh, in your lives. Now, last week we talked about sex in marriage. Uh, and so if you come last week and this week, and these are only two weeks, of church, this is fantastic. This is a sex sermon. So this is your, your lucky day. Um, met a couple last week who hadn't been here in a long time. They're like, yes, we got the sex sermon. So someone else said to me, I felt like I needed a cigarette after that one. Um, so I don't know, however you took that. Last week, we were talking about sex within marriage. Today, we're talking about sex in the city. In other words, how our culture views sex. And I was thinking about this. I don't know if you remember the first time you ever went swimming for a really long time or when you were a kid and you got to stay in the bath extra long. What happened to your hands when you came out? They were totally wrinkly, right? Do you know what happens in there? There's a membrane on your skin that allows the water to run off so that you don't get sort of um, kind of filled with water. But when you're immersed in it, that membrane kind of comes off and you actually become waterlogged. And that's, that's what happens. And that's the difference between sort of, it doesn't happen when you wash your hands quickly because you're just dipping your hands in something. But when you're soaking in something, it, you absorb it. And I would have to say this, when it comes to matters of sex, all of us have essentially absorbed the culture that we live in. The reason I know that is because, I haven't seen any stats on this, but anecdotally in my own life and many people, you got, if you grew up, virtually no or very little direction from your parents in regards to sex. If you did, it was an awkward conversation that you were wishing was over. You were pretty sure they were wishing was over. Maybe there was no conversation, maybe because their parents didn't have a conversation with them. And maybe you were given a book or not. And so ultimately, you sort of learned bumbling your way through from your peers on the playground or whatever, or when, if you got married or you started having sex with someone, 
You just sort of tried to figure it out, and that was how you learned. But essentially, what that means is those are all kind of little hand-washing if you got a book or something or your parents had a talk with you. But what we are soaking in is our culture. And here's some of the values of the culture we're living. Now, as I list some of these, you may disagree or agree with all of them or some of them, you're not sure, but these are some of the values of our city. It's okay for, it's okay for teenagers to have sex as long as they do it when they are ready and safely. It's okay to have sex before marriage. It's okay to have multiple partners before you get married as long as you don't have too many. And it's okay to have sex with people of the same sex. These are the some of the values of our culture in regards to sex. Now, you may agree with all of them, you may disagree with all of them, or you may draw a line somewhere there. But here are some of the other values of our culture, which are a little bit deeper, but are present everywhere. And we have to realize, okay, we're soaking in all of this through our media, through our consciousness, through our conversations, through water coolers, all this kind of stuff. Here's some of the other things we believe in our culture. And you may not believe these, but generally speaking, these are true in our culture. It's okay to watch other people having sex. That's what 25%, like I said to you last week, of all web searches are for that purpose. It's okay to pay people to take their clothes off in front of you and simulate sex with you. Well, not too much, and only the week before you get married, and at your bachelor party, or if you're trying to close a deal, or if you're in Vegas because Nevada gives you some kind of morality shelter. We believe that. That's why we advertise what happens in Vegas. This is mainstream. People say, yeah, well, it's kind of, that's normal. That's okay. It's okay to have sex with someone other than your spouse as long as you and your spouse both agree. This is some of the stuff we're soaking in in the culture. And for a moment, I think, as the church, we just have to step back and say, I don't, I don't think the emperor has any clothes on. It's an apt metaphor. I don't think that our culture, though they think they know what they're doing with sex, I don't think we actually do. Here's some of the crazier stuff that if we have to stop for a moment, sit back and go, yeah, that is kind of crazy. Fifty Shades of Grey. And I'm sort of beat on this, but here's why. Fastest selling paper book ever. Ever. When you look at the relationship between the two protagonists, or if there's an antagonist, protagonist, depending on how you see it. According to the Center for Disease and Control, they have a whole bunch of factors that tell you whether someone is in an abused relationship. The female protagonist in that film fits all of the characteristics of an abused woman. And there were studies done in Ohio State and Michigan State University that looked at what they call intimate partner violence. And this is people who are in a violent relationship that's an abusive one with an intimate partner. 31% of women around the world are in an intimate partner violence situation. 31%. And, and this, uh, the protagonist in Fifty Shades of Grey fits every single characteristic. If you were to say, describe the relationship, say, yeah, this is an intimate partner violence relationship. This is an abused relationship. And we launched it on Valentine's Day. Fastest selling paper book ever. And we put it out as romantic love. Guys, this is insanity. It's not normal. Grand Theft Auto V, in its first three days, sold a billion dollars. Fastest selling entertainment product ever. The next closest box office was Harry Potter 2 or something like that. Worldwide, 450 million. One billion. Do you know in Grand Theft Auto V, you can have sex with a prostitute and then decide whether you want to pay her or kill her. These are video games. Guys, junior high, if you have this game, torch it. If you know anybody that does, shame them until they do. This is 
violence against women, and it's first person. So in the video game, you play the first person character. A billion dollars. This is not weird stuff that only a few people are doing in the darkness of their home. This is mainstream. And I saw on um, change.org, which is like a petition website, that three women in Australia who were trafficked petitioned hard against Target to say, look, this is the lifestyle that many women are subjected to. And Target pulled it off their shelves as a result because they got such bad press over it. This is mainstream video gaming. We have epidemic levels of addiction to pornography and bedsider.org, which is a, uh, a birth control site, not sort of pro-abstinence or anything like that, said that they figure a, a girl growing up today by the age of 25, one in two will have an STD. 50%. All this says to me is, I'm not sure that our culture is a reliable source for what is wise about sex. Can we just agree? Doesn't matter where you draw the line, and we all might draw it in different places, but this is what we are soaking in, and if we are not aware, we will absorb these values of the culture. And we may say, some of the things that I said to you today, we said, no, no, I think that's totally destructive. But the line has moved, and the line moves for different people. And if we're not aware, like this is, this is being held up as mainstream okay. And it's not okay. And it's not just a, it's okay for you, it's okay for me. No, we're talking about people who are now getting abused and are viol and violently um, taken advantage of. And so not only, this isn't just a live and let live kind of thing, this is to say, hey, we have to actually stop. And part of the role of the church is to live as a counterculture within the culture. To say, hey, God's design offers us a different way of living. It's not a way where we judge the world around us. And that's really important when I said, like, two things we have to know when we get into this whole issue of sex. What the scriptures talk to us about the design of, of God's plan for marriage, singleness, and sex, and sex in particular, two things we have to remember. One, we just sang over and over and over again. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. That what God tells us and God's design is for our good. And it's easy to see how in many ways we are destroying ourselves with the sexual revolution that has taken full root in our culture. And so we have to remember, God is good. He's not trying to like squash our fun. His ways are good. They're perfect for us. And we have to sing them over and over because we've got to remember that. But secondly, it's not our job as the church to judge the world around us. I say all those things to let you know the culture that you are soaking in, that I am soaking in, that as the church, we have to say, wait a second, I don't think these are the values that I'm meant to live my life by. The Apostle Paul actually says that when he's talking to the church in Corinth, which is where the book we're going to read from, he says, it's not our job to judge outsiders. I don't like to use that language, but he was talking about those who don't consider themselves Christians. It's not the church's job to wag our finger at them and say, you shouldn't be doing that. It's our job to judge ourselves and say, hey, as followers of Christ, as people who are living as an alternate society within the society, as a counterculture within the culture, as a city within the city, what are the values of the city of God? How do we embrace those into our lives? And so last week we talked about sex in marriage. This week we're going to talk about sex outside of the boundaries of what God has laid out for us. If the scriptures give us a picture of sex that is supposed to be beautiful, fulfilling, enjoyable between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, what does it say for anything else in that? And why does it say that? And I would bet that most of us have not been soaking in scripture to know enough what it actually says. Most of us, even if we were growing up in a Christian home, we're not taught a biblical view of sex. What we were taught was maybe a dirty or shameful view of sex, which is not a biblical view of sex. 
And so we actually have to soak in scripture and say, what does God say about this and why? And how does that begin to be absorbed into my heart and into my life? Now, the, 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 if I could describe the way that our culture views sex and every other personal freedom that we exercise, is that each person does what's right in their own eyes. What's, what's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. you do, let's just live and let live. You do your thing. I'll do mine. The scripture actually uses those exact words to describe what total chaos is. Early on in scripture, when it says sin started to spread through everywhere, it says each person did what was right in their own eyes. And if you actually step back and say, well, why are we destroying ourselves? Because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And so you shouldn't have the right to tell someone what they can and can't watch on their TV screen. You shouldn't have the right to tell someone what they can and can't buy or can and can't sell because each person does what's right in their own eyes. And yet scripture says, well, that actually leads to a life of chaos. And so as people of God, we don't want to live in chaos. We want to live differently. And so here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, as he's talking to the church, to the church, not about the world, but about the church. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What Paul tells the Corinthian church is actually quite surprising. Now, the first statement, flee sexual immorality, we're like, yeah, yeah, I expect that's what the church says. What is sexual immorality? The Greek word is porneia which is where pornography and all that comes from. It basically just describes sex outside the bounds of male-female marriage. That's what the word pornea, and it describes everything from prostitution, adultery, sex before marriage, sex after marriage, everything. And Paul says, run away from that. Why? This is so significant. Because anyone who sins sexually, what? Sins against the Lord. So, so sins against themselves. This is a hugely progressive, Paul was way ahead of his time with a statement like this. He was describing the fact that when we use sex outside of the lanes in which God has given us, it actually hurts us. And we are now understanding this more than ever, that there is a physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual price tag to sex outside of the lanes that God has given us to use it in. Even though we live in a culture that says, well, sex is basically just an appetite. You know, so if you're hungry, you eat. If you're lusting, you should be able to have sex, whether with someone or on a computer or whatever it is. But the scriptures actually tell us what psychologists know. And in fact, like I said to you before, they'll say that the most powerful sex organ you have is your mind. And so there's a mental, emotional component. And many of you know for the regrets that you have in the past or maybe other th things that people did to you, it's not the physical wounds that have taken a long time to heal. It's the heart and the mind because this is not just a physical thing. And the Apostle Paul is saying, yeah, so, so if you use this outside of the way God has given it to you, you will hurt yourself. Why is God a good, good father? Why would he say here and not here, this way, but not that way? Why? Because ultimately he loves us. Why? Because God needs anything from us? No, because he knows if we use the things he has given us, not the way they were intended to be used, we end up hurting ourselves. And so Paul says, find God's design and everything else run away from it. Now, here's what's challenging about this for all of us in this culture. 
is we would look at this and say, well, someone who has a same-sex attraction, who says, by the way, same-sex attraction is not a sin. It's, it doesn't say those who are attracted to the same sex. It says those who, are, who practice sexual immorality was the engagement of it. And so that's sometimes just a distinction that we need to understand when we talk about, we don't tell gay people because they have same-sex attraction that that's a sin. But what we are calling people to is to say, no, sex is only expressed in the context of marriage. But this is what someone who has same-sex attraction or maybe someone who's in a, in a committed relationship but they're not married or someone who's single and maybe they don't think they're gonna be married, but why isn't it okay to have this if people I'm committed to or whatever? That's, this, that's a part of who I am. Isn't God saying, well, isn't God rejecting me by saying, you know, only if you're married, only if you're a man and woman in the context of marriage can you practice sex, but if you have those desires and you're outside of that, you can't. That kind of feels like a rejection of who I am just because I'm not married, just because I don't have opposite sex attraction. Isn't that a rejection of who I am? Here's where the conversation for me, I believe, has gone sideways. And again, this is something that I believe we need to understand is only fully understood within the church. Although for someone, if you're here, you say, well, I'm not a Christian. I'm not really a part of a church. Maybe this is still helpful for you to understand why God would say this and why it's not fundamentally a rejection of who we are. Because the whole conversation, specifically around sexual identity, but really about life stage and about the sexual revolution, was to say, shouldn't I be free to express who I am? What the scriptures tell us is, first and foremost, you are not a heterosexual or a homosexual. First and foremost is not your sexual orientation. Your sexual orientation is not your identity. Your sexual desires is not equated with who you are as a person. Not even your gender is fundamentally who you are as a person. The scriptures actually talk to us about an identity that, is, that transcends relationship status. It transcends sexual desires. It transcends gender. The scriptures begin with men and women created what? In the image of God. The imago Dei is what theologians call it. That this is, at the beginning of scripture, the most transformative principle. That you and I are not independent beings cut loose from a creator that wound up the world and set it in motion, but actually, out of the overflow of the love between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, in a sense, we were birthed, we were given life, and we reflect God. Our identity is that we are image bearers of God. First and foremost, and that begins to change the conversation. Because now who I am is not what I feel. Who I am is not who I'm attracted to. Who I am is not whether I'm married or not. We make a mistake of looking at marriage in Genesis 2 and saying, ah, this is ultimate reality which our culture and quite frankly, the church in many respects has held up and said, this is ultimate reality. This is the goal we are all trying to get to. And if you can't get there, it's, it's, uh, it's plan B for you. It's less than ideal. It's you're condemned to an unfulfilled life. And so whether a person who's same-sex attracted or a single person who's saying, well, I have these, we just say, well, sorry, you're just kind of left to live with your desires and that's all you get in life. But scripture actually begins with Genesis 1 where we are made in the image of God, where fulfillment in life and the deepest need of our heart is actually to sense God within us, to express his image in the world, that he has given every one of us a purpose and a calling in life that is greater than our gender, it is greater than our life, our relationship status, it is greater than our sexual desire. The beginning of the conversation 
God ultimately is not rejecting us or accepting us based on whether we are attracted to who we are attracted to or our gender identity or our relationship status. The confusion comes in the world when we start to have feelings and we think, well, I don't know, should I believe this or not? And what we, what we trust and see from Genesis 1 and 2 is that our lives are shaped by two forces. That you were created in the image of God, but that image has been corrupted by sin. And these two forces shape our lives. And if you do not understand that the image has been corrupted by sin, we will tend to look at everything that's in the image and say, well, this is good. If I feel it, it's good. If I have this desire, it must be legitimate. And the scriptures say, no, you were created in the image of God, but that image has been corrupted by sin. And so now we are all on the long journey back to try to understand, well, God, how have you made me? And so the beginning of conversation of sexual desire, of relationship status, is to say, God, what are your plans for me? Because you made me in your image. And that image is not bound to only be expressed in sexual expression. Whether or not you give me the freedom to express my sexual desires, it does not mean that you have robbed me of the freedom of life and fullness and joy. And this is what the scriptures actually tell us is our identity. So oftentimes, if you're within the church, you would say, well, well then is God saying that if I'm a single person or if I'm, a, I'm in a dating relationship but I'm not married, or if I'm same-sex attracted that I cannot fulfill my sexual desires? Yes, that's what the scriptures say. Does that mean I'm relegated to a life of meaninglessness and a lack of love? No. Do you know how we know that? Because as the narrative of scripture plays out, and this is interesting because there are people in the church who would argue from scripture, well, that the way that scripture was going, because, you know, when Jesus came, it started to change everything. And he was lifting up the status of men and women, and he was making them equal, and he was setting slaves free, and he was overturning social customs. So didn't, didn't he also um, overturn the whole sort of narrow view of marriage? And isn't in Christ now, isn't there a freedom, even for people maybe who are same-sex attracted, if they're wanting to get married, that they could get married, and that would be biblically okay. Actually, what we see, I don't, I don't draw those conclusions from Scripture. Here's why. Here's what we see in the narrative of Scripture, is that as Jesus comes, he actually narrowed marriage. Remember that passage we looked at a few weeks ago when he says, you, you, this isn't something you can just get in and out of. This is something that two have become one flesh and you are committed to for life. And he's giving this whole very tight, actually challenging view of marriage, which makes the disciples say something so countercultural in their time, which is, yikes, if that's marriage, it's better not to be married. He so narrowed it. This is hard. And they said, well, it's better not to be married. He said, well, then actually there is another way to live. And it's not other forms of it. He said, actually, and he was modeling this in his own life. He said, actually, those who don't want to do that have another option, and it's not plan B. Paul calls it a gift. It's those that God has called you to be single for the sake of the kingdom. And the Apostle Paul actually amplified in 1 Corinthians 7 what Jesus said in Matthew 19 and saying, actually, it's kind of hard to be married and I sort of wish you were like me, a single person, because it's a bit easier to live that way because a married person gets caught up in all of the affairs of marriage and it's a difficult life. If you're single, you live a bit differently. You have more freedom to serve God. You have more, for more opportunity to pursue God in a fulfilling way and let his kingdom work itself out in your life. And Jesus and the Apostle Paul both chose that way of life and both lived it out. And so they were saying, no, singleness is not this plan B. Unfulfilled sexual expression is not some plan B and sorry for you. And it's a rejection of your identity. 
If not being able to express your sexual identity was a, re was a rejection of your identity, then Jesus Christ was rejected by God because he was a single man and chose not to express his sexual desires, which he had because we know he was fully human. And so he's saying this, there is an alternate way outside if God has said marriage and it's not for you, there's another life that's actually as fulfilling. It's not plan B. It's different. And he did say it's a hard burden to bear. I remember walking alongside a friend of mine, who same-sex attracted, and we were talking about this and he, he, he was not a believer and he's like, Vijay, I'm trying to figure this out. And he was feeling drawn to Christ. But he said, if I go down this road, would God, you know, ever let me be with another man. And I said, look, I don't think so, but I don't know, and that's not up to me to tell you what Jesus will tell you, but I'll tell you this, is it costs every one of us something to follow Jesus. I said, you know, I'm a pastor in, in this part of the world, and to be a pastor, quite frankly, in this city and with you guys as a congregation is easy. To be a pastor in other parts of the world where when you go to church, you might come home to a burned down house or you walk four days to, in India to run a conference for pastors who don't have any other teaching and while you're gone, your wife might be raped, your children might be killed because people are against you. I said to him, I don't know why, I'm embarrassed to say I'm a pastor when I compare myself to that. Why has that man been called to such a higher level of obedience and trust than me? I said, I don't know, I'm embarrassed by it. And I said, if you were to embrace this for your life, it would be a much heavier burden to bear than many other people would have to, to follow Jesus. But every one of us, it costs us something to follow him. You see, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus has changed everything. In our church, we have tried to enshrine that in a vision statement which says this, that we as a church at Upper Room have a deep faith and a wide embrace. That's the vision of our church. Four words, hopefully not too hard to remember. What is it that we believe about that? We believe that as children of God, we were made to know God and we know God by having a deeper faith and trust and love in Jesus Christ. It recognizes the fact that every one of us is sinners. This is what makes me so angry about churches and Christians who wanna say, well, we need to protect marriage from gay people. Well, heterosexual people have wrecked marriage long before the gay people wanna get married. So let's just stop judging certain kinds of sin in the church and saying, this is much worse. The Apostle Paul says, forget what's going on outside of the world. Look at yourselves. We are all sinners in need of grace. And every one of us has many things in our lives that Jesus is going to ask us to lay down to follow him. He said it, if anyone would come after me, they must take up their cross and follow me. And he didn't they didn't understand what he meant until he was on the cross. What did he mean? If anyone would come after me, you must lay down your life, lay down your desires, lay down your ambitions, lay down your goals, and follow me. Why would we do that? And it costs every one of us something. And if you're trying to call someone else who's in the church, who'd have to lay down their sexual desires to follow him, and it has cost you nothing. If following Jesus has cost you nothing, you have to ask yourself, am I really following him? What is he asking me to lay down? What in my life is sin? What in my life is a desire that I feel is legitimate, but I'm not able to have? Am I willing to lay that down? 
and say, okay, for you, I'll trust you, God. I will not take matters into my own hands. I will not do what is right in my own eyes. I will trust you. I will follow you. That call goes out to every one of us who follows Jesus. And so we believe as the church that we have come to him, the one that we are meant to have a deep faith in, because as we lay down our lives and follow him, we are filled with his love. He shows us a new way of living. We receive his grace for our sins. We receive his forgiveness. We receive his power to give us strength when we feel weak and we cannot do what we feel like he's calling us to do. That's why we say it's Jesus, only Jesus. The church can't save you. The Bible can't save you. Your past can't save you. Your religious tradition can't save you. Your good works can't save you. Only Jesus. And that we want to be a community that says we all need to run to the cross on a daily basis. But as we do that, that we begin to have the wide embrace of Christ that Christ had. And here's the misunderstanding of what love truly is in our culture. We think, well, God, if you loved me, you would just let me express my desire. But the love of Jesus is not like that. The love of Jesus is so pure, so perfect, and this is it. He loves you exactly as you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you as you are. And so his is a love that calls us to change. It's not a grandfatherly love that is kind of disconnected from our daily life and sort of can't see anymore and says, you're so cute. Whatever you do, I love you. That's not the love of Christ. The love of Christ is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Your lives are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. You are mine. I paid the price for my bride, Jesus says to his church. You belong to me. Follow me. And so the wide embrace we have is that Christ loves us exactly as we are, but he aims not to leave us as we are. Every one of us wants to be more than who we are. Isn't that just true? We're not who we once were, but we're not yet who we want to be. And yet, if your life's anything like mine, I don't actually know how to change myself. I spend more time trying to change other people because I can't really do much about myself. The deepest longing of our heart is to be more than who we are, and yet we don't know how to do it, and so we have to stop thinking, well, I know how to do this. I know how this sex thing works. No. Christ, come into my life. Teach me a new way. I know you love me exactly as I am, but you purpose not to leave me as I am, and nobody, friends, has loved you like that. Nobody can love you like that. Your friend, your parent, your spouse, they cannot change you, hard as they might try. That love is not enough. It's only the love of Christ that actually comes into our hearts and changes, which is why for a single person or a same-sex attracted person or someone, you know, someone who's dating or not yet married and says, well, I have, to, I have to stifle this desire. The love of Christ is actually what we long for. The love of Christ is actually the thing that we need. And what I said to you last week is sex is never enough. That's why our culture has gone crazy on it. It's like, even if you just want to say it's just like an appetite, the more you eat, the more you need to eat to feel full. And we actually know sex, sex addiction, pornography addiction works that way in the brain. You actually need more to get the high the next time. So you need more and more. And that's why a lot of the pornography goes into deviant forms and violent forms. Why? Because you need more and more to satisfy. You're getting less and less. Why? Because we are longing, aching for the love of God which is why many of us even in marriage feel lonely because we think, oh, I thought it was going to fill this deep void in my heart and what we need to understand is no, you're just married to another sinner. 
And they need the love of God just as much as you. Only his love can come into your heart and give you a deep sense of peace and longing fulfillment that transcends your relationship status, transcends your sexual desires, transcends your gender. This is who we are. It's a deeper love that we're seeking. Now, before I close here, I wanted to give some time for some questions. Some of the questions that have come up over the last um, few weeks, I've sort of tried to address in some of these messages over the last two weeks. Um, but I realize there's maybe some more things that have come up or things that you felt like have not been fully answered to your satisfaction or something I said that you want more clarity on or you disagree with. And I can't promise I have great answers, but I'm willing to just step up here. Tony's number's on the screen if you want to send him something in. Okay. Um, one question says that you said to junior high, shame your friends if they have Grand Theft Auto. Um, however, if their friends think it's more than fine, um, what might be some helpful conversation points that you can talk to your friends about to make them question their game? And maybe you could even broaden that out. Like, that is a principle in general. Like, what might be some ways that we can engage friends or peers or coworkers in things that we might really differ on? Um, how do we enter into a conversation like that? Yeah, that's good. And I shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't shame your friends. I just get so amped up about this stuff. Like, violence against women just makes me crazy. And I just think we need to do something about it. So here's what I would say. It's not our job to judge people and tell them what they should and shouldn't be doing. But I think, and, and this is specifically to men, if you came to the human trafficking night, one of the police officers uh, who spoke he said, there's all this mess in this culture about human trafficking, and we were talking about vice squads and how they're investigating it and what we need to do to help the girls who are coming out. All of that is good. But he said, ultimately, if we don't challenge the demand, if we don't cut the demand off at the knees, this will always be going. And so I believe our role as men and women, but particularly men, is to change the conversation that are happening in our groups we, we have like, <clears throat> we use the word locker room to describe the types of conversations that goes, goes on between guys. It is probably not that honoring to women. And I think we need to be, as young men, older men, whoever, changing that conversation. That when you hear a friend, you know, not on the street, but someone who's close to you talk about a woman's body parts, or talk about a woman who walks by, or talk about women that you know in, in an honoring way, just say, hey, I think we should be a part of you know, treating and talking to women differently. And I know that sounds crazy, but we have to change the way to think. And I, and I bet most people don't think, I have friends in university or whatever would say, oh, the girls who are stripping, they like it. They don't understand that most of them are addicted to hard drugs and they don't have another way out. And some of them are even trafficked. And so part of what we have to do is help people see, hey, you're actually not thinking about this accurately. Do you know 88% of porn is violent? Are you the kind of guy, I don't think you're the kind of guy that actually wants to see women abused or subjected to that, right? Like, we wouldn't, want to, we wouldn't want our daughters or our friends or our sisters to be in that situation. So, like, I think we need to just shed light on what's happening because I think people live in the dark and thinking like, well, yeah, I'm gonna avoid the things that I think are really nasty, but it's sort of okay if you go to Vegas and it's sort of okay to do that and say, no, all this stuff is connected, it's not okay. And you need to make your own choice, but let me tell you actually what you're choosing. You're, when you go to a strip club or you, look online or whatever, you are allowing that woman to remain in a situation that ultimately many of them would want to get out of. And so I don't want to be the one that's keeping them in it, do you? And you have to pray for the Holy Spirit to, to trust that. In terms of conversations with people outside the church in this regard, um, we're, we're actually going to get into that in the next step. So 
Okay. Um, I mean, I think you addressed this to an extent, but how, how do we understand a same-sex relationship that is monogamous, long-term, and committed, that two people of the same sex would say, no, I want to make this covenant commitment to another person for the rest of my life? What does the Bible say on that? How do we understand that? Um, scripture, like I said, there are, there are some people in the church, there is a, a gay Christian movement that would say, hey, we think that, uh, you know, uh, at that time, it, they couldn't have envisioned that two gay people would want get, to um, get married. And so, um, but if they, if, they, if they had, then they would have given them the same boundaries and the same guidelines that they give for uh, opposite sex couples to get married. I don't see that in scripture. This is, this is a hard one for me. I think where, where I begin is not just the particular passages like this one that we read that says what it's a sin, but if we go back to the beginning and say, when God created marriage, before sin came into the world, it was one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And I think the thing I struggle with is, and first of all, what that means, is, there's, a, there's a guy named Christopher Yan. We didn't put his information in the bulletin. His last name is Y-U-A-N. You can find his, his videos all over YouTube. Um, he's a guy who lives with same-sex attraction, was practicing as a practicing homosexual, has come out of that, still says, yeah, I have same-sex desires, but I'm, because of what God has done in my life, I'm choosing not to express those, and I'm living as a single person. And he has a lot of um, uh, perspective on it that might be helpful if you're struggling with that or if you know someone who is. And let me just say that, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction in the church, or if one of your kids ever does, like, don't leave the church. Don't, don't think, oh, well, because these people don't agree with what I want to do, I can never tell anyone. Please, we want our church to be the safest place. And that we all know there are things that all of us feel that we don't understand. Maybe prayers that you've prayed for God to take it away and he hasn't. Or things you think, I don't know why this is wrong. Why couldn't I? All of that is conversation that should be able to take place in the church, even if we disagree with one another. That this would be a safe place that you would know that nobody would ever, and if someone ever comes out to you and says, I feel this, the first thing you should say to them is thank you, because that's probably really hard to say. And I'm gonna walk with you through this. That we would walk with each other even if we don't understand each other or why we would think differently about that, that the church would be a place for that. Now I've lost, I'm on another sermon here. Um, what was I just saying? Right, I think when I, when I look at the arguments for why a same-sex couple would say, look, we want to get married because we believe these are desires we were born with, and, you know, and, and, and many people say that. And to me, the issue is not whether you're born with it or not. I, I think like Christians have spent too much time to say, oh, God would never make you that way. We all know there are desires that we have that are good God-given desires and there are other desires that are not. And we can't, uh, we, we have to go to his word to tell us what's, what, how have you made us and what's the sin nature and how do these two things come together? But someone would say, look, I have these desires. Should I not be able to express them in the context of marriage? The challenge I have with what would then you say to a bisexual person? who says, well, I, I'm, I'm attracted to this person and I want to get married to this person. I know some of the language that I've seen in the culture even now, we're starting to talk about what healthy polygamy looks like, which is, I, I don't think there's any such thing as that. But how do you tell a bisexual person, yeah, this part of your desire is okay if you get married, but you're going to have to stuff this one down, which is the very thing that the culture says you shouldn't tell someone to stuff their sexuality down. And so I believe even the conversations we're having outside the church, we're not, where do you actually draw that line? Is it okay if someone's bisexual and they have, well, isn't that, aren't they setting themselves up for disappointment if eventually they're gonna wanna be married to someone who is, is the opposite sex or the same sex depending on who they married? Where does this leave them? And I think within the church you have to say, well, once we start to 
go down that road and say, well, God, we think you might have allowed this. It's not that we get all scared and think, oh, no, where is this going to go? But why would God have created this thing to say, well, what you desire isn't necessarily indicative of what you should do? Um, so that's, and I know that's a heavy burden to bear. And I know some Christians think differently on that. I just see the trajectory of scripture from where men and women created in the image of God and brought together in marriage and then Jesus offering a completely alternative lifestyle, which was non-marriage, which was singleness, that these are the two pathways that are presented to us in the body of Christ to say, these are two different, equally challenging, but different reasons, ways to find fullness in God as a married person, man and wife, or as a single person. Um, I'm gonna invite the worship team up as we close. Here's some next steps for you. For each other in the church, let me ask this question and you can reflect on this. What in your marriage, singleness, or sexuality needs to change? Because every one of us has things that need to change about the way we think, about habits we have created if we're married, habits we've gotten into if we're single, um, things in our lives. Maybe you're not even sure it needs to change, but it's been stirred up. Maybe I've said some things that have bothered you a bit and you're like, I don't know if this needs to change, but now I'm thinking about it. Who are you talking to about it? We have to be able to be a community that is able to talk about these things with one another. And maybe you don't feel comfortable talking about it in this setting, but in your home group, or perhaps your home group leader, or someone that's close to you in the church, you know, and say, hey, I haven't really told anyone this. And, and sometimes as married people, you can struggle with this, and you haven't told anyone, that's not getting help, because sometimes we're in it together. Uh, or sometimes we just talk to people who are in the same situation as us. You know, if you're addicted to pornography and you know someone else who is, that's good to talk to them so you can commiserate and share, but you need to talk to someone else too who says, hey, I need some help on this. How do, where do I go from this? We have counselors that I've directed people to. There are programs all over the city. There are really good people in the city that can help you. And so don't feel like reaching out for help is a bad thing. It's a good thing. And if you're not sure where to go, you can talk to one of us on staff, one of the elders. That's what I just want to encourage you with that. Whatever God is stirring up with you, you need to talk to somebody about it. And to everyone else, I think, you know, sometimes I've been so concerned about whether Jesus would love my gay friend, and I've not been as concerned as to whether my gay friend would love Jesus. Because ultimately, Jesus wants his life. Jesus wants your friend's life. Jesus wants to pour his love into their lives. And if we know his love, that's ultimately what we want for everybody who's outside the church. It's not our job to change them. It's our job to connect them somehow to the Savior we know and love. And so here's a few um, things for you. Maybe you just kind of stay away from people who think differently on these issues because you just don't want to get into the conversation. And I think there's wisdom in saying when someone asks you, well, what do you really think? Should gay people get married? I kind of pick my moments and go, well, why are you asking me that question? What do you, why do you want to know? Or if it's a huge crowd of people, I think, you know what? Sometimes I've shared this. I've been misunderstood. If you really want to know, I'd love to have coffee with you. But sometimes we can just stay away from people who think differently than us because we're afraid. Move towards them. Ask questions. Let them into your lives to see your heart. Share your story. Ultimately, it's not our job to change anyone, but Jesus has changed us, and the story that he is working out in your life even now is meant to be spoken out loud. Even if you think it's nothing like the story he wants to work in someone else's life, share your story with people who don't know Jesus because it's a Jesus story, and that's the only way they're gonna know him. Listen to their story. Don't worry about making statements. Ask questions. Find out who they are. Why, what are the longings they have in the deepest part of their heart? What are their struggles? What are their, what are their fears? What have other people said or done to them that's maybe hurt them? Do you know? Ask questions. Listen. 
And maybe someone who's really saying, look, I, I think I'd be interested in this, but I don't agree with, with a lot of this stuff. Just say, well, I'll read a gospel with you if you want to go through scripture together. Let's do this. As we end today, we're ending with communion. The table. You want to know, well, what, it, what does it actually look like for someone to lay their life down for God's purposes? Like, what does it mean, Vijay? You're saying all of us need to lay it down and follow him. What, what would a life look like if it was fully surrendered to God's plan? What would a life look like if it was fully given over all desires and everything to the way God wanted to use it? It looks like Jesus. Jesus is made, you know, is the image of God in the flesh, seen fully God, fully man, and he lived out what it is to be obedient to the Father above his gender, above his sexual desires. He laid his life down. And isn't it amazing that you and I receive at the communion table the life of one who lived in perfect obedience to the Father's will? When you and I lay our lives down, we become a blessing to others. That's exactly how Christ did it. He, he was obedient to the will of the Father so that he could be used to Bring us life. And so as Tony leads you in, as you receive today, just thank him for being the one, maybe who even did the thing that you don't feel like you can do, that he did it for you. So I want to give you the blessing now. If you, uh, you want to, you can just open your hands to help just remind you that you're receiving something from God. I want to bless you with such a deep sense of your identity rooted the fact that you are a child of God, loved and saved by grace, the one who Jesus Christ poured his life out to love and save and redeem. So that whether you're married and, and, and feeling fulfilled in it, whether you're married and struggling in it, feeling unfulfilled, lonely, whether you're a single person, wanting and hoping maybe that things will lead to marriage or you've decided it won't, whether you're same-sex attracted, whatever it is that is maybe a burden that you feel that you're carrying, that you would have a deeper sense of being lifted out above your desires to know that first and foremost, you are a child of God dearly loved. And then I want to bless you with what we just sang in that song that I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves, that you would actually have an experience even in the coming week and maybe even this morning of experiencing the love of God that your heart longs for. I bless you with that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who have loved us with that kind of love. Amen.